The first reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but, not, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not, know, you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit, for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, page 1042 in our church Bibles. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Just before I begin my sermon, I'm just to draw your attention to the fact yesterday I sent out a church-wide email with a letter attached, um, which explained the decisions and conclusions of the PCC following um, the recent survey we had about our mission and ministry here at St. Matthew's, including our pattern of Sunday worship. And so... If you are either not on email or you couldn't open the file or you need to, they are available on the desk on your way out today. 
um, which explains everything and some of the slightly changed pattern of worship that is going to come into effect from the 1st of September. But there's, so there's plenty of, of notice about it, but do take one on your way out if you need to. And thank you very much indeed from the bottom of my heart for all of your feedback which helped us in our deliberations. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would help me to speak, that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. I know it's hard to believe, but when I was at school, I was a bit of a troublemaker. And in particular, I think I was the cause of a lot of quarrelling and arguing among my schoolmates. And in fact, at one particular school, I actually acquired the nickname Argy-Bargy because I was such a pain. I refused to back down even when I was totally in the wrong. Now, I know you're thinking, Pads, that can't be true. You're such a lovely guy. You must be making it up. But I'm afraid you'd be wrong. (laughs) Well, hopefully I'm a bit nicer now. And actually, that rebelliousness in me held me back. I underperformed academically. I wasn't trusted when I was younger with responsibility. And I no doubt lost some potentially very good friends who simply couldn't be bothered to put up with it anymore. Now you can all go, ah. In our latest passage from the letter of James, which we heard this morning, James the author asks them straight out at the beginning, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And if you think of the context of the letter, it's an extraordinary indictment on these early churches that he's writing to, because this was a circular letter sent not just to one church, but to a a number of different churches, to a wide audience, just, what, 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And yet he feels confident enough to assume that his readers will recognize his description of their church communities as people who are fighting and arguing. And what he describes in these verses is quite a messy picture. In fact, in this one passage, if you pick out the points he makes carefully, you can find that he accuses them of pretty much every one, of breaking every one of the Ten Commandments. Not loving God, loving idols, in this case worldly things, asking with wrong motives is surely taking the Lord's name in vain. They're clearly not keeping the Sabbath holy if they are bickering and fighting. Fighting like that would also be dishonouring to their families, their mothers and fathers. He even accuses them of killing, even if he doesn't mean it literally. He calls them adulterers. They're trying to steal God's rightful place, if you like, by judging others. Asking with wrong motives also means false testimony. And he accuses them directly of coveting. So that's a 10 out of 10 for breaking the Lord's commandments. So does it make you feel better? Anyone like me on hearing how badly the early churches were doing make us feel a little bit better about ourselves? I don't know. Sadly, though, I think that if we look at the state of our own hearts and ask the same searching questions that James does, 
then we might begin to feel a little bit uneasy. We might begin to feel something like those Pharisees who accused the woman caught in adultery, who when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, started to back away and seemed a lot less certain of their own righteousness. It's true that James uses incredibly strong language. He says, you kill, you adulterous people, that you display enmity against God. But if we remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, we'll recall him saying, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment as a murderer. He says, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, don't just love your friends, but love your enemies. And we might think that a a careless comment or a criticism directed at or about someone is a relatively minor affair. But you can destroy a person with words. When we don't like the music in church and we have a go at the music team afterwards, we've put their, who've put their heart and soul into worshipping God, we can destroy their spirits. And then the light goes out from them. And I mean the light of Christ. And that's serious. When we say something negative to someone about someone else, we're indulging in the worldly pursuit of gossip and backbiting and we're sticking a verbal knife into their back. That's what James and Jesus mean by killing, and that's serious. When we criticise others' devotion to God by putting down the manner in which they worship, we're showing enmity toward God, and that's very serious. I love St. Matthew's with a passion, and I think St. Matthew's is one of the friendliest churches around. I try to love everyone in St. Matthew's as best I can, and I think that St. Matthew's is a wonderful church family. But we're not immune from the things that James is talking about. No church, in fact, no organisation, whether it's a business or a government department or a hospital or a school, is immune from these things. And the closer the relationships, the bigger potential for problems. And I mean, which family doesn't fall out from time to time. And we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Take a look around you at the other people in the pews. They are your family, children of God. And which children don't fall out from time to time? The good news is, and there's always good news, that James, the brother of Jesus, didn't just write a letter condemning the churches, these Christians in these early churches, he also provided some answers. The wonderful thing about the Bible is that on every page of every book of the Bible, there are answers to life's questions, answers to life's problems, and clear directions for Christians to live godly lives, lives that are full of freedom and joy and hope. So what does James suggest? Well, If we turn to our passage and read in the very first verse, we can ask, what are the causes of the quarrelling and fighting? And secondly, what does he come up with to help us? In verse 1, James names 
the issues, quarrelling and fighting, and also identifies the source of the problem, namely the battle, the desires that battle within us. So these external symptoms of discord are the result of an internal struggle. The problem with our desires, as he calls them, is that without God in the picture, our desires are normally selfish. We want what we like. We want to have it our way or no way. And in verse 2, when we don't get our way, we're inclined, therefore, to throw our toys out of the cot. We down tools, refuse to play ball, lose our temper, say things we shouldn't. Some people do that loudly. Others do it more subtly. But it's all the same. It's human relationships breaking down. And that causes a double problem. Because when our human relationships break down, so does our relationship with God. James says in verses 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask God. And even when you do ask God, you don't get because you ask with wrong motives. When we're out of sorts with each other, effective prayer becomes extremely difficult. Quite recently, I had an internal reaction of anger towards someone because of what they'd said to me. Don't worry, it's not you. (laughs) I didn't show my reaction on the outside, but I was carrying it for a day or two. And I found it almost impossible to pray. I did really want to pray. I tried very hard. But it was like a four-foot-thick stone wall had come between me and God. And as long as I was in that state, communion with the Father was out of the question. In verse 5, James begins to put his finger on the solution. It's a slightly strange question that he asks. And like many questions that James puts in his letter... It's undoubtedly a rhetorical question with the presumed answer, no. But he says this, do you think the scriptures, the scripture says without reason that he, in other words God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And the reason it's slightly strange is that no one has quite been able to figure out a particular scripture that he's referring to. However, all the commentators agree that there's no doubt that the breadth of Scripture is entirely in tune, that both the Old and New Testaments confirm that God does long for his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. The prophets Ezekiel and Joel foretold the time when the Spirit would dwell in the hearts of all believers. Jesus promised the gift of the Spirit in John's Gospel so that he could be in us and we in him. And in our reading from Luke this morning, Jesus implores his disciples over and over again to ask God to give them the Holy Spirit. This then is the answer to our internal worldly desires which result in the breakdown of both our human and divine relationships. God in us. That's the answer. Now you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. I'm a believer, so I already have the Holy Spirit, so how come I still struggle with these internal desires? 
Well, when we become Christians, three things happen, if you like. We do something, God does something, the church does something. We repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. God does something. He forgives us and gives us the Holy Spirit. The church does something. The church baptizes the new believer as a sign of cleansing from sin, dying and rising with Christ, and the water symbolizes the living water of the Holy Spirit. But even as Christians, the Bible tells us that we are constantly under attack from temptations in the world around us by our own sinful desires and by the forces of evil. So we need God's Spirit burning brightly in us and we need to make ourselves good vessels for his Spirit. How do we do that? Well, in four short verses, 7 to 10, James gives us no less than 10 instructions in almost machine gun fire rapidity. It's almost as if the 10 instructions counteract the 10 commandments that they are breaking. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And if we do these things, James concludes, he, God, will lift us up. Why lift us up? Well, because all these instructions are acts of humility. The lower we get in front of God, the more powerfully he dwells in us and the higher he will lift us up. Jesus said, whoever is least among you will become the greatest. If you want to find your life, he said, you need to lose it. So when we don't get our way, if instead of throwing our toys out of the cot and complaining, if we come before him and say, okay, Lord, it's not what I wanted, but I'm trusting you anyway, despite the circumstances, then his spirit and his love and his joy will pour into our hearts in ways we can hardly imagine. That was my experience recently when I was finally able to let go of my anger and say, Lord, you know what you're doing better than I do. And so I'm just going to have to trust you. And you know, it was almost a physical sensation, the Holy Spirit pouring back into me filling me up again. What we need and what God passionately wants for all of us is that he dwells in us, God in us, by his spirit. He wants an intimate relationship with us. That's why he says in our gospel reading, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we need to ask him. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. The creator of the universe has even made himself available to live in us by his spirit. And there's nobody beyond his reach. As James writes, God gives us more grace. In other words, God's love knows no limit. Whatever we've done in the past, however badly we've messed up, even as Christians, we cannot forfeit our salvation. The spirit of God dwells in every believer. And in Galatians, Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. The total opposite 
of the quarrelling and fighting that James has warned them about. I don't know about you, but I long for a deeper experience of God in me, the Holy Spirit in us. And the only question is, will we, by taking James's advice, by coming before God in humble submission, will we allow him in? The onus is on us to get on our knees and ask him with the right motives, with hearts thrilled by his love, his compassion, his mercy and his grace. May we be people in whom God can dwell. May St. Matthew's be a church where God dwells so powerfully that it's evident by how we love one another. Amen.